0: Open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. Most of us know what a placebo is. It's an inert substance that is given to people but designed to have no therapeutic value whatsoever, no real impact on disease and sickness they, uh, they frequently come in some sort of uh, sugar or saline substance, and they may have an effect on the way someone feels temporarily. They may have an emotional, we might even say psychological effect on people, so that they, they have a sensation of peace or encouragement or maybe temporary hope. But as a means of actual treatment, placebos... Have no value in attacking or eliminating or treating or healing the disease that afflicts you. It cannot make you better. Now, you could imagine the dangerous effects if doctors and surgeons in our nation all decided that they were going to treat people with placebos rather than real medicine. Saying, of course, that these things were true, people might have emotional effect, Uh, they may have some sort of comfort. There are plenty of people who would feel better, some soothing, but if they believed that the placebos were truly eliminating their disease, it would end with overwhelming misery and pain and suffering and death. In fact, some people may give up on medicine altogether, thinking that the problem is with medicine, not with the placebo. Well, there is a similar kind of crisis when it comes to the gospel message. People have, through the decades, slowly and steadily gotten rid of the true medicine of the gospel of repentance and faith, and they have replaced it with a placebo pill. Of easy believism. That is to say, they've replaced it with this notion that God will grant you salvation if you merely verbally profess faith in Christ. People who maybe respond to an altar call, people who pray a sinner's prayer, people who sign a commitment card or go through a baptism ceremony or a confirmation class or whatever it might be, they simply call themselves Christian. They have a verbal profession of faith. They make a claim to believe, but they have no deeds to back up their claim. They have, in effect, swallowed the lie of religious placebo. They have perhaps temporarily eased their fears or calmed their emotions or soothed their conscience or assuaged their guilt, but they are unaware of the sin like a cancer within them that is destroying them from the inside out. It is alive and well, and it will leave them completely damned on judgment day. They're the ones like Matthew 7.21 describes... Who Jesus says, come to him in the final day of judgment. And he says, Not everyone who says to me in that day, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. In other words, it's not merely enough to say you believe. It's not enough, I should say, to merely say you believe. It's not enough to simply claim to be a believer. It is not the hearers only of the word, but the doers of the word who will be justified. Many people, however, that have that kind of non-saving faith. There are a lot of people who, if you ask them, they would tell you they believe in Jesus. If you ask them, they will tell you they believe in the Bible. They would tell you they believe in God. They would tell you that they believe in prayer. They would tell you all kinds of things they believe in. But they do not have a truly transformed life. They're not doers of the word. Their life isn't marked by repentance and obedience that comes from genuine faith. They have a faith, but it's not a faith that saves. Now, as we come to the book of James in chapter 2 this morning in verse 14, and we've been looking at this book for a number of weeks now, it is addressing exactly these kinds of people. The people who are self-deceived, the people who are hearers of God's Word, but not doers of God's Word. The people who have a faith of some sort, but it's not a saving faith. James has outlined a number of ways that you can test yourself to find out if you're one of these people, a kind of, of test of your faith. He spoke about how your faith responds in trials. He talks about how your faith responds to temptations. He talked about, in general, how you respond to the Word of God or how you treat the poor and the needy. All of those things are, are kinds of tests that he's already given us regarding our faith. But today, we come to what is really the heart of the message of this book and his clearest articulation of the problem of self-deceived faith. Uh, James is describing people who call themselves Christians, or they have a kind of profession of faith, the kind of faith, however, that is worthless. A faith that doesn't save. Or as James famously says, it is a faith that's dead. A dead, useless faith. That's what he calls it. It's a faith that's dead. It's a faith that equals nothing. He he calls it in verse 17, faith if it has not works, is dead. Or in verse 20, faith without works is dead. Or verse 26, faith without works is dead. A faith in God, a faith in Christ, a faith in the cross, a faith in prayer. People have all kinds of faith. They believe, they they profess, they say all these things. But at the end of the day, it's a faith That doesn't save them from hell. A religion that doesn't save them. A profession that doesn't save them. It only deceives. This is what James says. This is the way he describes this. He says, what good is it, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith? that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body... Apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. What James wants to do for you and me, what he wants to give us in this passage is a warning. He wants to give us a a warning about a kind of faith that does not save, a kind of faith that may give intellectual stimulation, it might even give emotional satisfaction, but in the end, it is useless, worthless for anything. Now, in doing that, he describes this faith with a number of metaphors and analogies and illustrations to make it more clear for us, five in total that, that illustrate, that describe the kind of faith that doesn't save. He begins, you'll notice, In verses 14 through 17, he begins by describing this non-saving faith as a faith that is devoid of benefits. It's a faith that's devoid of benefits. What good is it, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Again, down at the end of verse 16, he asks the question again. After describing a faith that lacks compassion, he asks, what good is that? What good, what profit is that? It is useless. It is devoid of any benefit. It is unprofitable. It doesn't benefit the people around you because it doesn't really produce any kind of genuine love and compassion for them. So it has no good fruits. And it doesn't benefit you because it doesn't save. It's of no benefit. Completely devoid. James focuses on these uh if you will, dual uh, deviations or, or or dual delusions. He, he first and foremost talks about how this kind of faith is useless to you. It, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? That faith can't save him. And the implied answer, uh, or he asked the question, can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. And that is a false faith. That is a faith with a false hope, that is a faith that cannot save you from your sins and can't save you from hell. It is nothing but empty profession. No matter how much you believe it's true, no matter how much someone might have told you it's true, no matter how long you've held on to that kind of false hope, no matter what the circumstances were, if your faith is not accompanied by deeds, it is a non-saving faith. That's James' message, plain and simple. You say, but I've always heard. I mean, if you just pray this prayer, if you just believe, you'll be saved. I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, for by by, by grace you've been saved through faith. You're saved through faith. Well, certainly it's true, but that same passage, Ephesians 2, goes on in verse 10, just uh, the next verse, and says, For we are His workmanship, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, if God saves someone... He saves them unto good deeds. He saves them in order to create a life of good deeds. That's why the Scripture tells you that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. So a genuine faith, a saving faith, is always a transforming faith. It's always something that changes you from the inside out. And the reason... James is telling us this. The reason James was warning us of this is because there's, there are people, even in his own day, who began to believe for whatever reason that they could be saved from their sins and saved from hell by simply aligning themselves or calling themselves Christians. In the reasoning of James, if you have not been changed then, If you've not been transformed on the outside, if there are no deeds on the outside, it gives evidence that there's no change on the inside. You have a useless faith. In fact, it's worse than useless. It is actually deceptive. It may actually lure you into a complacency that would leave you damned for eternity. Never really finding salvation. But James doesn't just focus on This lack of benefit for you, he says, is also devoid of benefit for others. I mean, it does no one any good. I mean, there's hardly anything worse than an unconverted, self-righteous, religious person full of a form of godliness but denying its power. It's a terrible testimony to the gospel, a terrible testimony to the church, a terrible testimony to Christ, uh, someone who can spout a few verses and maybe name a few Bible characters and, and perhaps even tell a story or two about a religious experience. But their life, in effect, has no difference on a day-to-day basis from anyone around them. They are just as selfish, they're just as... They're just as lacking in mercy, just as lacking in humility, just as lacking in joy, just as lacking in love as the person that they run alongside of every day. There's no difference in their life. So all of their religious involvement in the end does no one any good. And James illustrates this in verse 15, when he talks about a brother or sister who's poorly clothed and lacking in food, and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. What good is that? I mean, here's the classic needy person. They don't have the, the basic necessities of life. They're poorly clothed, and so they're cold, and they have no food, and so they're hungry. And here you are, you have the means, you have the capability, and all you can think about is your own comfort. All you can think about is your own security. And so rather than sacrificing anything of, of that for yourself, you just say to them, be warmed and be filled. If you've been with us through the study of James, you already know that this is a frequent concern for him this kind of hypocritical religion that shows no concern for people around them, more concerned with their own pocketbook, more concerned with their own resources, their own materialism, more concerned with their own comforts than they are with those who are. Who are in need? He told us back in verse twenty-seven of chapter one, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He told us at the beginning of chapter two, for you to dishonor the poor would be to to reflect the fact that you may not even understand the gospel, because Jesus Himself is the one who called the poor and said it was to them that He was giving His kingdom. So for James, this was this was not exceptional. This isn't just a few people within the church who would have a heart for the poor. This is basic and fundamental to Christianity, that you would have a compassion for the needy, that you would feel a pinch in your conscience whenever you realize their need, that you would want to do what you can to make a difference. And if you do nothing, he says, it brings your faith into serious question. It doesn't matter if your message to them is gentle and kind and encouraging. It doesn't matter if you are meaning them well. You see them along the way and you say, oh, brother, sister, oh, I feel your pain. Oh, be warmed. Be, be filled. Oh, I, I will pray for you. Oh, I will pray for you. Nothing but words doesn't fill their stomach. It doesn't clothe them in the cold night. Devoid of any benefit. Because your life still revolves around you. Because you're all about your own comforts. You're all about your own kingdom. And so James says in verse 17, that faith, that kind of faith, by itself doesn't matter how much you spout religious verses. It doesn't matter how much you call yourself this, that, or the other. As a Christian, it doesn't matter if it does not have these deeds. It's dead. Secondly, James describes this non-saving faith as a faith that is dubious in its claim. It's dubious in its claim. There's serious reason to doubt this kind of faith if it doesn't have any evidence of works. And he presents this hypothetical conversation with an opponent. And and the conversation, as it's recorded in the book of James, has perplexed a lot of people because James, in verse 18, speaks about this generic person. Someone will say. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So this someone, it would appear is claiming to have works. But James's whole point is that they don't have works. His whole point is that this is a person who apparently is comfortable without works. So why does James present this person as saying that they have works in this hypothetical situation? Well, some people have explained this by saying, well, the hypothetical person is James. James is talking to someone else, you have faith, I have works, which I suppose would make some sense, but it would be a strange way for James to refer to himself as generically uh, just referring to himself as someone. So probably the better way to understand this is to understand it as a question, To, to, to understand this as someone asking the question, do you have faith, and that's you can do that in the Greek language. The Greek uh, doesn't have inherently in it punctuation. We have to make judgment calls about where punctuation goes. But in the Greek language, a, a an affirmation, a statement, is formulated the same way as a question. The only thing that determines the difference is context. And so here we could take this as a question. Someone will ask the question, do you have faith? And James will answer, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, James is saying, if someone asks me if I believe, then I'm going to point, to them, uh, point them to my works. It's a little bit like the disciples of John the Baptist, whenever they showed up uh, at one of Jesus' uh, uh, spots of ministry, and they came asking the question, are you the promised one, or should we wait for another? And Luke records in Luke seven twenty one, in that very hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blinded, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus was telling the disciples of John, let my words speak. I mean, let my actions speak for me. Let my deeds do the talking. Well, James is saying, if someone asks me, Do I believe, if someone asks me, do I have faith, I'll let my deeds do the talking. I'm not going to immediately run out and tell them, well, you know, I, you want to know whether I'm a Christian. Well, at such and such an age, I prayed a prayer or at such and such an age, I made a decision or at such and such an age, I responded to an altar call and I signed a card. That's not the way he's going to explain to them if he has faith. But that's predominantly the way people respond today. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Well, uh, yeah, I I did this whenever I was uh, X number of years old. And this might be decades ago. And yet that's what they cling to as the evidence of their saving faith. I'm not just going to say, I believe, James says. I'm going to put forward evidence of god's work in my heart of a newfound love in my heart for him uh, of a a newfound joy over his people and his church Uh, how i am now moved with compassion when i see a brother or sister who is hurting how i'm diverted from the love of the world to the love for the things of god how i'm spending my time sharing the good news with friends and family or if you want to put it in the context of the kind of works that James has already talked about, you would tell the story about how you responded in a, in a particular trial by clinging to God, or how you responded to a temptation with humility and understanding God's goodness, or how you responded to a rich or the rich or the poor, all of these would be the proofs of your faith. So James says. You show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Someone has said it's like electricity. It is essentially invisible until you see its effect. You can't prove that that there's power in the system. You can't prove that there's power in the house without turning the switch and seeing the lights come on, or maybe it's like the wind—you can't see it, but you see the trees that that bend and bow with its, with the gusts. Well, James is saying, "I can't show you my faith without showing you my works. I can't do it." And, and if you want to demonstrate a degree and a measure of. of of works or I should say if you can't me- demonstrate a, a degree or measure of works then your faith is dubious if you can't point to anything by which you can say, I'm different. If you can't point to anything by which you can say, I've been transformed. If you can't point to anything which says, I once loved the world, but now I love God. If you can't point to anything that evidences that by way of your works, your faith is dubious. You can claim it all you want, but the only person you're deceiving is yourself. It's a dubious claim. Thirdly, James describes non-saving faith as a faith that is demon-like in its quality. It is demon-like. I'm not saying it's demonic, but it's demon-like in the sense that it is no better than the faith of the demons. Did you know that the demons have a kind of faith? Did you know that demons profess the lordship of Jesus Christ? Did you know that demons believe certain things and know certain things? They can recite doctrines and truth, but it doesn't save them. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, but they shudder. In other words, you may have a faith that is essentially no different than demon faith. You may know some things about the Bible, so do the demons. You may know some things about Jesus, so do the demons. You may know some things about heaven and hell, so do the demons. You may be able to recite a doctrine, maybe even recite a catechism, so can the demons. Did you know that when Jesus cast demons out of people, that they made orthodox, correct statements about him. Luke four forty one. the demons came out of many crying out, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Demons know The right stuff. They know that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. They believe in the cross. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the oneness of God. They believe all these true things. All these orthodox things. Demons know the truth. They know it better than you do. That's never been a problem. The problem is. They don't do the truth. The problem is. They don't practice the truth. You see, knowing the truth is one thing. Practicing the truth is another. They believe in God. They even tremble with that belief. They know the truth, but it doesn't give them any sense of ease in their conscience. It doesn't give them any sense of peace in their heart. It still leaves them burdened and frightened and terrified about life and about judgment. They know the truth of God's judgment. They know the truth of God's holiness. They know enough that it causes them night terrors. They may even have better faith than you have. But you may falter on the same grounds that they falter. That neither the demons nor you practice the things that you've heard. It hasn't impacted their life and it hasn't changed their heart. Fourth, James describes non-saving faith as a faith that's different from the patriarchs. A faith that's different from the patriarchs. Now, Now he's beginning to ratchet up his rhetoric. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, you deceived person, do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to really have your foolishness exposed? Well, let me point you to Abraham. The prototype of faith, or as James calls him, the the father, our father. Abraham, our father. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as Righteousness. So he calls Abraham our father in the same sense that that Paul calls him our father in Galatians 3 7. It is those who are faith who are sons of Abraham, Paul says. So, in the same way, he's the father of everyone who believes because he's the prototype of of what faith is. Even at this early stage of the church, when James was writing, Abraham had been identified as the classic Old Testament example of saving faith. He was the prototype of everyone who would believe and so identified by Christians as our father. And James makes this shocking claim. Was not Abraham justified by works? Now that has caused no shortage of consternation among Bible students. This was the verse which caused Martin Luther the great reformer, to label the book of James as the book or the epistle of straw. He, he never fully rejected it as a part of the canon, but he was close. He was on the verge of doing that. Luther was wrestling with what so many people wrestle with, which is the fact that, uh, that ap- apart from James, particularly when you look at the Apostle Paul, that this is, in fact, the, 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 the very opposite, it would seem, of what Paul says, and Paul uses the very same example, the very same person, that is Abraham, to say that you are justified not by works but apart from works. You're justified by faith alone. That's what he says in Romans chapter four. And in fact, not only does he use Abraham, he even quotes the exact same verse, Genesis 15:6 that James quotes. So Paul says you're justified not by your works, and James says that Abraham was justified by his works. Now this strikes right at the heart of what has historically separated the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. The idea among Protestants that you're justified by faith alone. And the idea with the Roman Catholic Church that you're justified by faith plus works. Now, how do we understand all this? Well, first of all, I think it's helpful to, to just begin by saying, what do we mean by justified? The basically, the word means to render a favorable verdict, to render a favorable verdict. And most of the time particularly in the letters of Paul, it has the sense of being found by God to be free of any charge, to be free of any guilt. And this is how he uses it. In fact, look with me over at Romans chapter 4. It's helpful for us just to see it uh, on the page from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Romans 4 verse 1, what then shall we say? So in terms of justification, in terms of being found righteous before God, Paul says that if Abraham was found righteous on the basis of works, it wouldn't be a gift, it would be wages. Just like you, you go to work every week, you log your hours, you do your task, you do whatever you have to do, and at the end of the time, your employer Owes you salary. They owe you something in exchange for everything that you did. Well, he's saying that if Abraham is saved by what he did, if he's saved by his works, then God would owe it to him. And there would be no credit to God. God wouldn't be glorified in that. He would just be a sort of a divine taskmaster. Moreover, he says, Abraham would have reason to boast. He could take credit for everything that he did. Although Paul says it wouldn't be before God. Because that stuff has no meaning before God. It may have meaning for other people, but as he goes on to say in Romans, none of that stuff has any meaning to God. None of your deeds. None of your your prayers. None of your gifts. None of your... Religious involvement, none of it has any meaning before God. That is because you have no basis to approach God. You are already condemned. You're already, already condemned. You were born condemned. And so you don't even have a way to approach God. You don't have a way to even negotiate with Him. But God does count people as righteous. He does remove their guilt. But He doesn't do it on the basis of your deeds. He does it on the basis of faith. This is as Paul says in verse 6 right here. David also speaks about the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So this is the way it works. When you are righteous before God, it's because God credits you with that righteousness. It's because God deposits that righteousness into your account. You're justified on the basis of believing in God. You're justified on the basis of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't there because he earned it. It wasn't deposited into his account because he did something. It was deposited there because he believed. That is clear, clear not only from the book of Genesis, but from the book of Romans and from the teaching of Christ. Sometimes we say that righteousness is imputed to you by a judicial decree. God simply declares, on one hand, you are free of guilt, you're free of the penalty of your sins. And on the other hand, you are credited with righteousness you are given credit for what you haven't done because the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account now you have all of that that's what Genesis 15 6 says that's what Paul elaborates on it's just taking the language of the scripture for itself that's what Paul's doing now he takes us out of Genesis Genesis 15 when Abraham was an old man that's when When you come to Genesis 15, you're reading the story of a man who's already 75 years old. His wife is already quite old. She's beyond the childbearing years. She's already reached the stage of menopause. She can't have children anymore, and she's barren, and and so there are no children. And at that point, God tells Abraham, You are going to have a son. And not only that, but you're going to have descendants who are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And at that moment, long before the children come, at that moment, Abraham believes what God said. He believes, and at that moment, he is declared by God to be righteous. That's what Genesis says. It's all very clear. The real question is not what Genesis says. It's not what Paul says. The real question is, does this align with what James believes? And the short answer is yes. James believes that salvation is the result of God's mercy. It's the result not of your deeds, but of God's grace. In fact, in James 1.18, He's already told us that God, of His own will, brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. And He told us as well in James chapter 1, verse 21, speaking again about this salvation, He talks about the implanted word. Which is able to save your souls. So he's already talked about this word of truth by which we're saved by believing in the word. Now he talks about the implanted word, which we again receive by believing it. Later on, he'll talk about the prayer of faith, which is able to save you. James believes the same things that Paul believes. More to the point, James, as he deals with the passage of Abraham, listen to this. He understood that when he gets to the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, he understands that Abraham was already saved. Abraham was already saved. You Remember, this is the story that he gives us. Whenever we're reading in, here in the book of James, he talks to us. He says, was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Do you know where you find that story? Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Abraham is maybe 110 years old at that point some 35 years after genesis 15 this is long after abraham had believed the promise this is long after the promise had already been fulfilled long after isaac this this promised son had already been born and he quotes to us from genesis 15 Abraham believed God. If there was any relationship between God's declaration of Abraham's righteousness and Abraham's deeds, it would have made much more sense for James to point to some deed that Abraham did before that declaration. There would have been examples for him to do that. He could have talked about Abraham's obedience here and there. But he doesn't choose any of those things. Because, listen to this, because he's not trying to say that Abraham was justified before God by his deeds. James is explaining what he has already been saying throughout this context. That Abraham's faith was visible. In his deeds, The same way that James told us that if you want to say you have faith, I'll show you my works. He's telling us that Abraham did the same thing. Abraham demonstrated his faith by his works. In this way, Abraham's faith was justified or we might even say vindicated. James uses the word, but he uses it in the sense of vindication in the eyes of other people. The word can be used that way. The word not only means to be declared right before God, but it also uses it's also used in scripture to talk about proving yourself right before other people. For example, Luke 10:29, a young lawyer comes before Jesus and it says, quote, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Or Luke 16:15. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Or Luke 7.35, it even talks about how wisdom is justified by its children. So the word is used, depending on the context, to talk about justifying or validating or proving yourself before people. And it fits the context here with James. He's concerned with the demonstration of your faith. All that fits, we would say, the semantic range of this word. And, more importantly, it fits within the historical framework of how James quotes the book of Genesis. He points, his point, I should say, is not that Abraham first performed deeds and then was declared justified. His point is that Abraham was declared justified and then performed deeds. If you read the passage of James carefully, you'll notice this. James says that Abraham's works fulfilled his faith. James 2:22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith completed the word is teleos. Faith completed His works. Uh, the word telios can mean complete. It can mean fulfill. It can mean to bring something to its goal. So His faith was brought to its ultimate goal by His works. We might even say it this way. His faith was brought full circle whenever it demonstrated itself in works. It's only at that point you'll notice here in the book of James, in verse 23, it's only at that point that he actually quotes Genesis 15:6, which he says was fulfilled." The final goal became visible. From Abraham's invisible faith. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, before that moment, uh, Abraham's faith maybe you could say was, uh, was a, a, a declaration or a profession. But by the time you get to Genesis 22, there's no doubt. His works fulfilled everything that was declared all the way back in Genesis 15. So James is not contradicting Paul at all. In fact, he's he's lining up right with Paul. He's looking at Abraham as the quintessential example of a man of faith. But what he's saying is Abraham's faith wasn't vacant of works. It eventually played itself out. It, would, it eventually was fulfilled. It eventually reached its goal. It eventually was teleos. It eventually demonstrated itself. Now, you might be there saying, well, I've got faith. I believe I'm going to heaven. Well, you may have a faith that's not a biblical faith. It has no relationship to the kind of faith that's talked about in the Scripture. And it certainly has no relationship to the examples of faith that we have with Abraham. Or, by the way, Rahab. He tells the story here of Rahab, probably because she was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. And and not only that, she was a prostitute. She was a, a lady who worked out of her sort of hole in the wall of Jericho, worked her trade. And yet, when spies showed up from among the Hebrew people, she recognized the truthfulness of God. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen on people and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She knew these things. She professed these things. She had a verbal declaration of her trust in God, but that wasn't the end of it. She didn't just declare that she believed God and believed these things. She stuck her neck out, wrist, everything she had to support God's people. She hid the spies in her room until they could escape. She helped them to escape the city. And when Israel finally overthrew Jericho, no one had any trouble with any doubt about whether or not she had truly converted to the side of God and of His people. Because her works proved it. And so James' whole point is, if you have a faith that produces works then you have this kind of saving faith. But if you have a faith that doesn't produce works, it's a different kind of faith than Abraham's. It's a different kind of faith than Rahab's. It's a different kind of faith than any of God's true saints. And then finally, James leaves us with this. A non-saving faith is a faith that's dead in its essence. It's dead in its essence. Verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead, useless, powerless, incapable, nothing more than a rotting, stinking corpse, already starting to decay, already decaying further until finally it results in your eternal damnation. You have swallowed a placebo you have swallowed a lie. If you think that some prayer that you prayed or some profession that you made is enough, if God hasn't touched your heart and transformed you from the inside out, if God hasn't given you a faith that is changing your life, redirecting your desires away from the world and to the things of God. If God hasn't given you a faith that produces works, then you have a useless dead faith. The good news that James would tell you, that Paul would tell you, that we would tell you, the good news is that all that can change, God does hear the prayer of faith. The person who's willing to confess their lostness, the person who's willing to confess the fact that their sin has left them condemned and worthy of hell, the person who's willing to confess all those things and place their faith in Jesus Christ, in truth, that person will be saved. Our challenge to you this morning is that you wouldn't leave here with a dead faith. But you have a real faith, a true faith that you today would be so awakened that you'd repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ and be saved. Would you stand together with me? We'll close with a word of prayer and a song. If you would like to respond to this message of salvation, we have a visitor reception. It's down this hall in a room to the right. We'd love to be able to meet with you, share with you from the Word of God how Your sins can be forgiven, how you can be converted, transformed by the power of Christ, made new and destined for eternity with God. Father, we're grateful for the word that is so clear to us. We're so thankful that you've given it to us in the life of Abraham, in the message of Paul, in the message of James. It's a message that has touched our hearts, transformed us, and we desire it to continue to transform us. Lord, we pray for those who are here who all they have is a placebo faith. All they have is a non-saving faith. They've heard of You, but their faith is no better than the demons. Lord, we pray for them that You would strike them with conviction, that You would strike deep into their hearts that they would repent And that they would believe. May you work for the sake of your name. For the sake of your mercy. For the sake of our blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.